a lot. I think gives us a little bit of insight into um, what they've been up to. They say, Jesus, why do we and even the Pharisees fast a lot, but you guys don't? You're probably somewhat familiar with the practice of fasting, which at its most basic level means not eating food for a defined period of time. Um, fasting was very common, a very common, common religious practice for the Jews. There were certain times in the Jewish calendar where everyone had to fast, and uh, they did that together as a way of remembering God's past deliverance of his people in generations past. Then there were certain life events that demanded fasting, like the death of a loved one. It demanded a season of fasting, of mourning and fasting. Um, and then any other life moments where somebody felt especially desperate for the presence of God, for the help of God, that would be another time for fast, for fasting. And then, of course, there's the professional fasters who would fast um, multiple times a week sometimes. Uh, we're told by Jesus that they would disfigure their faces so that everyone could see how wonderfully and miserably religious they were. And um, Jesus didn't condone that, but they were uh, people, some people fasted to impress others. So, But that's not the main question here. Uh, JTB's disciples do not show up and question whether Jesus and his disciples are sincere in their fasting. He's questioning why are they not even fasting at all? It's kind of amusing when you think about the progression of what Matthew's just showed us, right? In the, in the previous passage, uh, Matthew tells us that the Pharisees just asked Jesus why he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners. And then now these guys show up and ask Jesus, why do you guys eat and drink? Period. I can't win. Or maybe I can read between the lines and draw out the question that might be behind the question. Jesus, why do we have to be so miserable all the time while you guys get to party? You know that moment you realize that you wish you cheered for the other team? <laughs> like that moment that's lasted 37 years for Bears fans? <laughs> Why do you filthy cheeseheads get to be happy all the time? <laughs> We're over here miserable week after week. Maybe there's some of that going on. I don't know. But I'm guessing there's probably also a little bit of sincerity in the question that these guys bring. Jesus, we know our teacher John thinks you're a pretty big deal. You do a lot of really cool things. But why are you disregarding so many of the practices and rules of righteousness that are supposed to set a guy like you apart from everyone else? Jesus, why aren't you playing by the rules? See, there were rules and there were expectations in Jesus' day. Pharisees had them. Righteous people don't eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. JTB's disciples had them. Righteous people fill up the scorecard with the right checks and the right boxes. And Jesus doesn't seem to care about playing by anyone else's rules or meeting anyone else's expectations on his ministry. It's not that he, Jesus has no regard for righteousness. That's the furthest thing from the truth. It wasn't righteousness that Jesus took issue with. It was the way of righteousness that Jesus had something to say about. The rules of righteousness in Jesus' day included things like stay away from tax collectors and sinners, 
and afflict yourself with fasting as often as you can tolerate. And Jesus will have none of it. He shows up and shows that these most supposedly most righteous ones, leaders and teachers of Israel, have totally missed it. They've totally missed the heart of God in all the things that they're doing. You can go and read the first 10 verses of Isaiah 58 tomorrow if you're interested in seeing that this isn't Jesus starting something new. God's been trying to get this message across for many hundreds of years. You're missing my heart, people. Jesus didn't come to say that fasting is not important or that pursuing righteousness doesn't matter. He came to clarify. He came to perfectly display the heart of God. Many people, it would seem, prefer the outward form of righteousness over the inward reality of it. So add John's disciples to the ever-growing list of confused religious people. Some of us might know a thing or two about rules and expectations. Jesus, why don't your disciples over there fill in the blank, like me and my friends? Jesus, I thought Christians were supposed to fill in the blank. I want to be very clear. Disciples of Jesus are supposed to look like something. Disciples of Jesus are supposed to care fiercely about righteousness and righteous living. It's just that it doesn't always look the way we think it's supposed to. Self-righteousness and rivalry are not the exclusive property of Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples. It's possible for disciples of Jesus to drift out of step with the truth of the gospel. It's possible for disciples of Jesus to drift out of step from the truth of the gospel and fall back into a mindset of rules and expectations. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 2 that even Peter, the rock, drifted and got out of step with the truths of the gospel. You and I are surely susceptible to that. Or maybe you're listening and you're not a disciple of Jesus. And based on what you've seen of Christians, you're pretty sure you don't want to be a disciple of Jesus. You've seen too many people call themselves Christians but look more like Pharisees than Jesus. You've seen too many people that call themselves Christians that seem more concerned about looking righteous and being right than actually reflecting the heart of God. And you've decided, I'm not sure I want to be one of those. And I hope you're never one of those. But that's not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You might be understandably confused at what it means to be a follower of Jesus, just like these disciples of John were. That's nothing new. But the best way to get unconfused is to do what we're doing right now. Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Pay attention to what he says and what he does, and then align yourself with people that take that really seriously. Righteousness does matter, but we need Jesus to define righteousness for us and to keep on defining it for us as long as we walk with him. 
So let's keep that in mind as we continue through this passage. So we've seen the question posed by the disciples, Jesus, why aren't you playing by the rules? Now we come to verse 15 and Jesus' answer. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay, so you got to love Jesus. Typical fashion answers a question with a question, and he's always ready with culturally relevant, biblically biblically rich imagery to drive his point home. For the sake of time, I will let you explore Old Testament allusions to uh, God becoming the bridegroom of his people, but let me just point to Hosea 2 real quick. I think it'll come up above my head. In Hosea 2, Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus, God prophesied these words through the prophet Hosea. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, a day that's coming, a future day, you will call me my husband. This is God talking to his people. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So this is imagery that's, that's not new. When Jesus starts talking, calling himself the bridegroom, there's Old Testament things showing up in people's heads. Not only that, John the Baptist, we were told in John chapter 3, the Gospel of John, that John the Baptist actually referred to Jesus as the bridegroom also. I think there's a slide for this. He said this, the one, when people were saying, are you the Messiah, John? And he goes, no, it's not me. The one who has the bride, he said, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's me, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete because the bridegroom's here. He must increase, I must decrease. So that's how John had already talked about Jesus. Um, so Jesus is speaking their language when he comes out and starts talking about the bridegroom. And the answer that's implied in Jesus' question is clear. Why don't they fast? How could they fast? The bridegroom's here. You said it yourself, John. The bridegroom's here. This is a time for great rejoicing. How could Jesus' friends fast at a time like this? Check out this spread. Tables set. Cups are overflowing. Plates are full. This is no time to fast. This is a time to feast, Jesus says. The bridegroom is here. Let the celebration begin, is Jesus' answer. Jesus has just recently been accused of being a bit of a party animal. And to this he replies, Guilty as charged. The prevailing misunderstanding of the day, whether it was the Pharisees or John's disciples, was that the way of righteousness is all about cleaning yourself up sufficiently enough to gain entrance into the heavenly wedding feast. And then Jesus shows up and says, actually, the way of righteousness is actually all about me. It's all about your relationship to me. And entrance into the wedding feast is all about your relationship to the groom, regardless of how dirty you are. And as Jesus moves along in his ministry, the people that are gaining entrance to the feast, according to Jesus, are in fact some of the dirtiest, most obviously messed up people around, while some of the people who thought they were really clean and separate from from sinners are being shut out. And rightly so, I suppose, when you don't even recognize the groom. See, religious box checkers are interested in a formal transactional relationship with God. 
And Jesus shows up and starts talking about marriage. Heart-level intimacy. And says, this is what I'm after. This is what I've come to do. Ever since we were cast out of God's presence back because of our rebellion in the Garden of Eden, as the book of Genesis describes, we've been living a fasting and mourning-worthy existence. This isn't how it's supposed to be. We were actually created to live in perfect fellowship with God, not separate from him, not distant from him. Separation from God is the great tragedy of mankind. And until that's reversed, the right response for people living in exile is fasting, mourning, lamenting. But for about three decades, some 2,000 years ago, for those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, everything changed. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God became the Son of Man and brought His kingdom near. The bridegroom showed up to win back his bride. And that, according to Jesus, was no time to mourn. That's what John the Baptist's disciples didn't understand. It's what the Pharisees certainly didn't understand. It's what we need to understand. I'm a married man. I was a bridegroom once, back in 2003, the year of our Lord. I'm a big fan of marriage. Do you know that when God designed marriage, he had your salvation in mind? Not because your spouse was going to save you. After God created the first of our kind, the man we call Adam, God said this, it's not good that man should be alone. But the man wasn't alone. He was with God. Alone wasn't going to be a thing until sin would separate man and God. That day was coming. So God put Adam to sleep one day, and out of his body, he took a rib while Adam slept and God brought forth a wife for him, a suitable helper, an intimate companion to help solve the problem of alone. Therefore, Genesis 2.24 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's how Genesis 2 records the first wedding and the intimacy and exclusivity of that first union. And there have been husbands and wives ever since. But then we see, as we keep reading the Bible, that God starts picking up this imagery of husband and wife. And he begins to use it a bit cryptically to start talking about his relationship with his sin-estranged people. You will call me husband, Hosea 2 said. And then Jesus shows up and starts calling himself the bridegroom and saying things like we see here. The bridegroom is here. Let the celebration begin. I will betroth you to me forever, Hosea said, in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. A forever relationship between God and his people grounded in righteousness and justice, steadfast love and mercy. Where did God's righteousness and justice 
meet God's steadfast love and mercy. The cross of Jesus. That's where God's justice and mercy met. Where did God's right judgment for sin meet God's merciful heart for sinners? But at the cross of Jesus, the altar where the groom was once again put to sleep and the bride, the church, was created out of his body. The Apostle Paul wrote eloquently about this profound mystery in Ephesians 5. I think it'll show up above my head. He says, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2 being quoted. This mystery, Paul says, is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul's saying that way back in the garden at the first wedding, God had another wedding in view. It's not that Adam and Eve's marriage wasn't real or meaningful. It's just that it wasn't the main event. It wasn't the main point. It was actually meant to point to something greater. It was pointing to God's plan of redeeming his soon-to-be-lost and sin-sick bride. It's not good that man should be alone. Not you, not me, not anyone else. So the bridegroom, Lord Jesus Christ, came, lived among us, died in our place, and rose again to unending life, creating for himself a people for his own possession, a bride to be with him forever. And to anyone who recognizes the groom and says, I'm his, he's mine. The bridegroom welcomes into his family and says, let the celebration begin. Bridegroom came with a purpose to create his bride, and he did it by laying down his life. So, for us in 2022, looking back on those decades where mourning wasn't appropriate, and yet experiencing living in the good of what was accomplished in those decades, Christ has come, he has redeemed his bride, but we find ourselves in this kind of in between place that Jesus describes in verse 15. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then they'll fast. That's kind of the space we live in. What some people call the already but not yet. Jesus has already come, redeemed his bride, but he's not yet come and consummated the, the union. He hasn't, come, he hasn't come a second time yet and brought us back to himself. We live between the first coming and the second coming when Jesus will come and bring the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and then we shall always be with the Lord, and fasting and mourning and crying and pain will be known as former things forever and ever. So as people of the in-between, we're kind of that generation who can describe ourselves like Paul did when he said, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Or, 
dancing, and yet still mourning. Celebrating, but still fasting. But just for a little while longer. This is our part in the in-between. So let's stay awake and stay dressed with our lamps lit and our hearts prepared so that we're not found unprepared when the bridegroom comes back. And let's not make the mistake that Jesus describes in verses 16 and 17. Let's look briefly at those. The third thing we see in this passage is an explanation. Jesus says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled, the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. So Jesus gives us a picture, admittedly a little bit less relevant to us than it was to them. We can, we can work with it. Give us a picture of the kind of thing that happens when you mix two incompatible things together. He says, a new, unshrunk piece of fabric that's patched onto an old, already shrunken garment will eventually create a worse tear when the patch shrinks and pulls away from the original garment. And he says, old wineskins, which, I'm sure you know this from experience, grow crusty and lose their stretchability over time. They can't expand anymore with new wine that's still fermenting and expanding. They're going to burst and the wine's going to spill everywhere. Big waste. The new way of Jesus, the bridegroom coming to ransom his bride, the new way of Jesus was incompatible with the old way of the law. That's what Jesus is saying. The old way of box checking. The old way of keeping yourself separated from sinners. The old way of building your resume of things that will make you acceptable to God someday. Jesus says, what I'm bringing is incompatible with the way you've been living. Jesus had been fleshing that out in the clearest way possible as he went from town to town, gathering to himself not the pious and put together, but the dirty and despised. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So now he's fulfilled it. All future attempts at law-keeping righteousness are incompatible with the new way of Jesus. He's already fulfilled it. Another thing you can read yourself tomorrow, but in the beginning of Romans chapter 7, Paul explains it like this. He says, when two people are married, they're they're bound by law to each other. And when the husband dies, the woman is released from the law of marriage and can lawfully marry another man. Paul says, in the same way, God's law is legally binding on a person as long as that person's alive. But if you're united to Jesus by faith, you're no longer alive. You've died to the law with Jesus. And you're now free from the law. Because it's been fulfilled in Jesus. And you've died with Jesus. It's law, it's, you're freed It no longer binds you. You're not free to belong to another, he says. Here's his summary statement in Romans 7, 6. He says, we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we now serve the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code or of the law. So here's the point of Jesus' explanation. Disciples of Jesus can't keep living according to the old way of law-keeping righteousness, a righteousness of our own of our own doing. The new way of Jesus 
is incompatible with the old way of the law. You can't take little bits of Jesus and patch them onto your old way of self-righteousness. You can't take little bits of Jesus as if, as if your righteousness is in pretty good shape and you just need a few Jesus patches here and there to tighten up the places that you're admittedly a little weak. No, Jesus says, you need an entirely new outfit. You need an entirely new set of clothes. You need to be wrapped in the righteousness that's Jesus's. Not patched up here and there, the righteousness that's yours. Our only hope of being brought back into right relationship with God, the only way anyone gains entrance into the blessed wedding feast of heaven, is if you are wearing Jesus' righteousness, not a patched up version of yours. And you can't come to Jesus with your crusty old wineskins of heartless box-checking religion, thinking it's going to be able to contain the life that Jesus brings. The way of grace, or the new way of the Spirit, as Paul says, that will explode all man-made attempts at righteousness. Every effort to try and clean yourself up enough to gain acceptance before God, can't contain it. We said earlier that we need Jesus to define the way of righteousness and keep on defining it for us as we walk with him on this earth. Well, how does your personal pursuit of righteousness need to align or realign with the way of Jesus? Might be a question for some self-reflection. How does your pursuit of righteousness need to realign with the way of Jesus? Second question is, how can you prioritize intimacy with Jesus and the things that matter to him over the old ways of heartless religion and checking boxes? The bridegroom has already done all that's necessary for you to enter into his eternal joy. Jesus uses the language of bridegroom because he wants your heart. Well, brothers and sisters of the in-between, along with Jesus, I do endorse fasting as an appropriate ongoing response for us while we continue to live in this broken world away from Jesus. I do endorse fasting, but not on Sundays. On Sundays, we feast. I'll admit it's not a huge meal, but it's the most important one you eat all week. If you have the privilege of serving this meal to your brothers and sisters uh, today, you can start making your way to the front. So we have more information than JTB's disciples had. We know that a short time after that conversation about fasting and self-denial and righteousness, we know that Jesus would, in fact, just a short time later, deny himself, take up his cross, and open up a way of righteousness for anyone who would follow. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're really glad you're here. We're going to take what we call the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. People are going to come up and take bread and cup. And and if you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to encourage you, you can just hang in your seat while everyone else is getting up. Don't just get up and do it uh, heartlessly 
like we've been talking about, just because everyone else is doing it. Just stay in your seat. No one's going to judge you for it. This is something that followers of Jesus do. We do this on a weekly basis as a participation and a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. It's part of our ongoing walk of faith with Jesus. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you maybe stay in your seat. Think for a few minutes of qu- in quiet of, of what Jesus has said, of, of this way of righteousness of your own life. Maybe even turn that time into praying to God to help you understand these things a bit more. Uh, nobody's here to judge you for staying in your seat. Nobody here is better than you. We've just all come to grips that Jesus is our only hope, and we hope that you would do the same. But for the rest of us who are living by faith in Jesus, let's not fast, let's feast on the body and the the blood of Jesus that was given for us for our redemption. Uh, Brothers and sisters, you may come when you're ready.